Our scripture reading this morning comes from Exodus 1, 1 through 11, 13 through 14, and chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. So good morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here. It's good to see you this morning as we begin a new series uh, of sermons from the book of Exodus, uh, the second book in the, the Old Testament, which chronicles God's rescue of his people of Israel uh, from slavery in Egypt. And I'm really excited. I'm excited about these weeks. We'll be doing this. We're going to be really looking at the highlights of this book from now until Easter. Uh, and if you were to ask why we chose this particular uh, book in this particular series, I, I have three reasons uh, why. And the first is that I would say uh, it's because you can't understand the rest of the Bible if you don't understand the Exodus, because so much of the rest of the Bible alludes to the Exodus. There are echoes of this story everywhere, from the beginning pages of Genesis, in fact, all the way to the last chapters of Revelation. And so if we're going to know the Bible well, and understand the contours of the Bible, we have to understand the implications of this text because it's so, so important for the overall story of the scriptures. Second, my second reason would be uh, because the story of Israel's exodus is our story too. In fact, you see the title of the sermon this morning is The Exodus, uh, Our Story. And so to be a Christian is to be a person of the exodus. And we're going to labor all throughout these months to show this, but just consider this, just consider this one fact, okay? Um, God has given to his church two sacraments, and both of those sacraments reenact the events of this, of this story here in the Old Testament scriptures. The Lord's Supper is a remembrance of the Last Supper, which was celebrated by Jesus and his disciples at the Passover, and it is a reenactment of the meal that the people uh, celebrated together on the eve of the Exodus, Baptism, that, which is our, our other sacrament, is a passing through the water where the, our old self is drowned, just like the Egyptians were in the Red Sea, and we emerge as a new 
people, a new person. It reenacts that Red Sea crossing, which is a part of this story. So I think just in that, you see that we are an Exodus-shaped people. If you're a Christian, you're an Exodus-shaped person. And so you need to understand the implications of the story. But then the third reason is to say that all that I've said is that we are saved people. That the testimony that Christians have before the world is not that we are good, moral, decent people. Right? I know you. And you know me. That is not true of most of us. Our testimony before the world as people of faith is that God is a saving God. We are slaves to sin and death. God is a great rescuer. That's the message of this book. It is the message of the entire Bible, really, that we are a saved people. That what we need is not just to be morally improved. We need to be rescued. And God is the great rescuer. He is the great rescuer. And so in Jesus, we have been delivered from the greater slavery to sin and death and transformed by the Spirit into joyful, obedient worshipers. That's the story of every single life in this room of a person who believes in Jesus. So if you're a Christian, then the ultimate hope for your life is that God rescues. It's that God rescues. I mean, everybody, everybody in the room is going through some hard thing. And the hope is not a better you or a better plan. It's that God is a God of grace, that he's a God of rescue. And, and, and what we learn from this text is that you and I, we have no choice but to trust God's heart for us. Because that salvation comes. God saves. And that's the message of this book. And so if you want to look here with me uh, at the three points that I've given you in your outline, I want you to see, uh, as we talk about some kind of big ideas, we're doing the big idea stuff today as we start this series. And we're going we're gonna to fill these things out in the weeks to come. But the big ideas that I want you to see this morning are this. That first, what this text teaches is that you must, you and I, you must trust God's heart in what I'm going to call the powerful absence, in the times where there's a powerful absence in your life. Secondly, not only must you, there's really no other way, but secondly, you should trust this heart because of the promise of this, of this book, and that is that God comes ultimately with a powerful deliverance. But not only must you trust this heart because there's really no other way, and not only should you trust this heart, but thirdly, you can trust this heart. Because this story, and really all of the stories of our faith, are stories of powerful grace. Because of the greater and ultimate Moses and the greater and ultimate Exodus that this story points us to, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, okay? So a powerful absence, which gives way to a powerful deliverance because of powerful grace. Let's just walk through the text under those three headings, if you would. First, look here. There is a powerful absence in the text, and I say it that way on purpose because God is hardly mentioned in these first two chapters. He doesn't show up really until the very end of chapter 2 in those words that Susan read a minute ago. And he's absent in the text because he seemed absent to the people as they struggle through their slavery. And we all go through times like that, don't we? Where God seems to have forgotten about us. Where it just seems like we look for him and we can't find him. And the lesson of the Exodus story is that actually you can trust God in those moments. Because here's the truth. The scripture just screams at us. Okay, Not only here in other places, but... Largely here, and it's this, that God is actually most active in the times when he seems most hidden. It's when God seems most absent and most hidden. That doesn't mean, you know, that doesn't mean he's not working. 
That's actually when he's working the most, when you should expect him to be working. There's a story being written, and you're in the middle of the story. So hang in there, the Bible would say. It will ultimately make sense in the end, but God is doing something. And even when it seems like he's nowhere to be found, not only does that, that doesn't mean he's not working, that, that's when he's most at work. Now let me just first, to, to kind of bring us into this story, before we get into the details of that, though, we need to talk a little bit about Egypt, because Egypt in the Bible, this is where the people are as the story dawns, and Egypt in the Bible is more than just a nation or a place, it is a spiritual lesson, because the predominant feature of Egypt is, of course, the Nile River, and the Nile meant that the Egyptians were not dependent upon the rains like the rest of the, Mes- rest of the Mesopotamian nations around that part of the world. They had all of the water they needed all the time, which in an agrarian world meant security, and financial prosperity, and so forth. And so one writer that I read this week put it like this. He said that the Egyptians could live independently of heaven because they didn't need the rain. It didn't matter if the rain came. The Nile gave them, which is why they worshiped the Nile. It was a a god in their culture because the Nile gave them everything they needed. So Canaan, Canaan was the land of dependence. Egypt was the land of independence. So of course, uh, it was a famine, as we know, in, in Genesis that sent Jacob and his descendants there in Egypt to begin with. So it makes sense that Israel would, even after God brings them out, which we'll see in in a few weeks, even when he brings them out under this harsh rule of this Pharaoh, it it makes sense that they would be tempted to go back. Over and over again, they're tempted to go back because you don't have to live by faith in Egypt. You don't have to trust God. But in the Bible, the native soil for the people of God is the wilderness, not in Egypt, because the wilderness is where you live by faith. So one of the things that we have to just know at the outset, the scriptures would say to us is, be careful of Egypt. Don't settle down into Egypt. I mean, it was a number of years before the Israelites were made slaves and then enjoyed incredible success and prosperity. We're told God made them a nation as he said he would. He did all these wonderful things for them. But it's curious, the commentators say this, it's curious that they never left. They didn't go back to the promised land when they could. It was too comfortable in Egypt, even after... Even after 400 years of slavery, they still wanted to go back. And so it's a a curious lesson for us. There was no way they were leaving while all the good stuff was happening. And there's a draw, even for us, even, even to this day, to go to places that are just safe and easy and where we don't have to live by faith. Now, if you don't leave Egypt for the wilderness, here's the lesson then God will turn your Egypt into a wilderness. And what then? Well, then you have to trust him and you have to endure because even in his absence, it's a powerful absence. Now look, the story of this book begins with the names of those who came down into this land with Jacob as a reminder to us and to the people that were reading this originally that they were indeed God's chosen people. God does see And he does know, look at verse 5, all of the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Every single name was known personally and mattered greatly to God. And that makes what happens to them all the more inscrutable because Jacob came down to Egypt, he and his sons, with the divine promise upon them that God would bless them and make them a blessing to all the nations of the earth, that he would increase their number and that they would become a great nation of people. I mean, that's the story of Genesis summarized. God's promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to do that for their descendants. And we read here in verse 7 that it's exactly what began to happen. So everything God said he would do happened to them. Verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful 
and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, that not only echoes the promise of God to Abraham in Genesis 12, but it also is the language of Adam and Eve in the garden with the, the cultural mandate. And so there's a connection here with what's already taken place in, in the book of Genesis. This book, Exodus, actually begins with a preposition. It begins, and, which no editor would ever recommend. But, there, but it's there for a reason. We're, we're to see the connection. We're joining a story already in progress here in the opening pages of Genesis. God has a people, and he's promised to bless those people and to make them into a great nation. And here in verse 7, we see him doing just that. It's all going Exactly according to plan. And then comes verse 8. And it all begins to fall apart. Because at the very next verse we read, But then there arose a new king of Egypt who did not know Jacob. And this Pharaoh did not look kindly upon Israel. He was threatened by their numbers. And so, we're told, he used his political power to force them into slavery. And for 400 years they were slaves in Egypt. Like, we don't even have categories for 400 years as a people. Do you understand that? Not just slaves. They, were, they, th- they faced the threat of genocide and annihilation. And so here's part of what I would say to you this morning. I know some of you are going through some pretty, pretty tough things, some pretty awful things. But whatever you're going through, it's not this bad. 400 years. I mean, think about that for a minute. 400 years ago was like the Mayflower, by the way. Actually, does anybody know their history? 1620. So 400 years next year, I mean, there, there is not a single structure just about in this entire country that's 400 years old. And yet these people were there for 400, that's a long time. Did you, did you catch it in, two, in chapter 2, verse 23, during those many days, right? Don't you just want to read that? Susan kind of did it, right? You read that and just kind of groan those many, I mean, 400 years feels like many days, doesn't it? And so if the lesson is that the Israelites could hold on to hope, even enduring slavery and violence over 400 years, then maybe you and I can too in whatever story we're in the middle of. Now, here's the thing. In Genesis chapter 46, verse 3, God said this to Jacob. He said, see, God sent them here, actually. Here's what he said to Jacob. He said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you a great nation, and I myself will go down with you and be with you, and I will bring you up again. And so what does it look like for God to be in Egypt with them? Well, it looks, of course, like the success of verse 7 of chapter 1, but it also looks like the reality of verses 8 and following. The 400 years of slavery is not what it looks like for God to have abandoned them. This is what you have to, we have to wrap our minds around. The 400 years of slavery is what it looked like for God to go down with them. God has not left them. That's not why they fell into, into, into this harsh oppression. All that happened in them over those centuries was God making them into a great nation. So in everything that happened to them, God was present and active and fulfilling his purposes. And I don't know about you, but for me, that, I, I'd say that's a bit unsettling. It's actually a lot more than a bit uns- It's incredibly unsettling for me. Anybody else? You with me? When God seems most hidden, that's when he's most active in fulfilling his purposes and doing good to his people. One commentator put it this way. He said, 400 years is easier to look back on than to live through. And I think that's true of most of the hard things we go through in life, despite their timeline. But it's a good reminder that what we need most, 
when we're in the middle of God's strong absence, when we're in the middle of a time where it feels like we've been forsaken, what we need the absolute most is patience. Because if the story teaches us anything, it is that God is in no hurry, that he is always doing 10,000 things. And you and I, we might be aware of two or three of them, but impatience is actually the posture of saying that the one thing I think I need from God the one thing I'm sure that I need most is more important than the 9,999 other things that he's doing, not to mention the 10,000 10, things he's doing in you and in everybody else in the room all at the same time. We need patience. You with me? Because the text does not tell us why God takes so long. It doesn't tell us why he allows things to persist, but it does tell us the truth. It does tell us the truth, and no matter how hard whatever it is you're going through is right now, no matter how long you've been there, please hear the truth at the end of chapter 2. God does hear. He remembers. He sees. He knows. Always. So if you're wondering what took so long, might I make a suggestion to you? Consider this. Look at, look at those verses at the end of chapter 2, down at the bottom of what we printed for you. It says that the Israelites... The first response they had to all of this, this trouble in verse 23 is that they began to groan. So they started by groaning, and that word means they're so exhausted that they could barely utter a word. It's like, uh, it's, have you ever had a day like that where you're just so tired, you come home and you really don't even feel like you can talk? You just kind of lay on the couch or lay on the floor and just say, uh, that's that. But then what happens is, is their groaning turns into something else. It goes on to say in verse 23 that they begin to cry out. And that word means to shriek. It's a word that describes pain. Like if you're, if you're in the gym and, you know, you, you lift a weight and you realize in the lifting of it that, you, you know, you, you've hurt yourself. And you kind of go, ah, you know, you cry out. You, you, you yell, ouch, because it's, the, it's the, the physical pain that you feel. But it's used as a sense of a complaint. They're just complaining. They're just kind of running around saying, rah, 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 rah. that's the sense they get. So their groaning is given way to complaining, and it's all throughout these, these years. But then something happens. Then like, there's a turn in the story in verse 24 because their groaning, which progressed to shrieking, then becomes something else. And we're told there that they finally, at some point, they begin to cry out for rescue. And that's something different. That's prayer. It's, they've come into faith now. They, they, they turn to the Lord. Uh, and, and their turning to God was the turning point in the story because it says that their cry for rescue, verse 24, came up to God. And that language there describes the way that their pain and their experience came into God's heart. That when they realized they had nothing left and nowhere else to go, they, they turned to the Lord. They didn't turn away and become bitter and, and harden their hearts toward him. In their need, they cried out to God, like, like the songs we sang a little while, while ago, help God, we can, there's nothing we can do, you have to come. And it says that their prayer came right into God's heart because he's a father of mercy. Isn't that amazing? And so listen, whatever you're going through, God hasn't forgotten about you. He remembers, he sees, he knows. That word means he's emotionally invested in your life and in your experiences, he can't stand for you to be in pain. Those are the things that you can be sure of. A lot else you can't be, but as long as you're sure of that, then I've noticed that the rest takes care of itself. So trust him. Cry out for rescue. He will come down. Now it'll be in his time and it'll be in his way, but he will come. That's what the story teaches. But secondly, not only do you have to trust God's heart because of the way life goes, because life is full of these strong absences, but you should trust his heart. 
Because the text promises something to us. It promises a powerful deliverance. And that really is the storyline, that God is coming to rescue Israel from slavery in Egypt and to bring them back after 400 years into the land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Pharaoh, of course, would not let the people go without a fight. So what we're going to see in the coming weeks is that God will come to powerfully deliver them from Pharaoh's clutches through a series of miraculous supernatural events that would put Pharaoh in Egypt on the floor and they would have no choice but to let the people go. Now think about this. Think about the ironies that take place so that you can see the way God's power works here. The Israelites were threatened by Pharaoh, this this ruler, this king, and yet their deliverer, Moses, who we'll meet next week, he, where did he come from? And isn't it fascinating that Pharaoh was bent on the destruction of God's people, and yet the deliverer of God's people was raised in his house as his adopted son? Isn't that amazing? That the, the, the Jewish babies were thrown into the Nile River by the Egyptians to drown them and to slaughter them, and yet Moses' mother put him in a little boat and cast him into the Nile, and it was, he was drawn out, out of the Nile and saved. There are so many ironies in this story to show that the promise to you and I is that no matter how bad it might seem, God's purposes cannot be thwarted. That's the amen moment, by the way, okay? Amen. If you didn't get it, just, just know it passed you by. I mean, God's purposes cannot be thwarted. This, there's a powerful rescue. And this powerful rescue becomes the main metaphor in the rest of the Bible for God's salvation. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, then you've experienced an exodus. Sin, according to the Bible, is not just something we do. It's not bad things that we're guilty of. It's a spiritual power. It's a kingdom. So we don't just sin. We're in sin, the Bible says, and we need to be rescued. And God has come in Jesus and then in the Spirit to powerfully deliver us from the clutches of sin and death and to bring us into his kingdom of righteousness and peace. That's the rescue. Now, it doesn't necessarily come with a change of circumstances because sometimes the only way God can rescue you is to not rescue you from your circumstances. Because the ultimate rescue, salvation, according to the Bible, is the rescue from the misery and the slavery of serving anything in your life is more important than God. That's the ultimate rescue. Salvation, let me say it again, is the, the rescue from the misery and the slavery of serving anything in your life as more important than God. So look at verse 14. And the English translations mute what's actually happening in the original language because the same word occurs over and over again, but it's so clumsy that if they translated it that way, that it would just sound weird. And so they substituted words to make the, the sentence go a little better, but it really does miss something because here's what it really says, verse 14. They made, they made them bitter with serving in mortar and brick and all kinds of serving and every kind of serving they made them serve. So you're just being hammered with this word. And the Hebrew word is the word avav. And it's a word, it's not work. It doesn't mean that you're busy with things. It, it's a word that means to serve a master, to be a slave, to be under the harsh, oppressive regime of someone who, who has put themselves over you and to be in a place of, of, uh, of dis, disenfranchisement and powerlessness. And so here's, here's the lesson. It's a number of things. First, that everybody is serving something or someone. That's what the scripture would teach us. David Foster Wallace famously put it like this. He said, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. And by the way, he was a secular atheist. 
who said there really is no such thing as atheism. There's, only, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. So we're all serving something. We're all living for something. Something that you say, you know, if I have that, I'm okay. I can, I can be happy. And whatever it is, that is your functional God and Savior. And here's the thing. If you serve, if you allow yourself to serve anything or anyone other than God, then that thing will turn you into a slave. It will become a master because sin is slavery. If you allow something other than God to be your center, then what happens is your heart will be in servitude to it. Your heart will be chained to it, and you won't be living happy in the world. Life will be like it was for these people, verse chapter 1, verse 14, bitter and hard because that thing will be so elusive, you'll always be in danger of losing it. You won't be free. You'll only be as happy as long as things are going well, and that's a real problem, isn't it? Why? Because things are hardly ever going well. And so you'll forever be battling anxiety and fear or emptiness or whatever it might be because all the other gods we serve don't have the power to save. They can't make you free. They can't make you feel safe. They are taskmasters that afflict with heavy burdens, verse 11 of chapter 1. So if money is your god, you'll be a slave to financial success, which means you'll be anxious all the time. You'll exhaust yourself for more and more and more, and it'll never be enough. There'll be no amount in the bank that will make you feel safe and secure. It's just slavery. Or if family is what you serve, then the smallest thing. Listen, do you understand what slavery it is that a grumpy kid can send you into an emotional tailspin? Right? Because what you need most is for everybody to be happy. And so you'll exhaust yourself trying to control everybody's happiness and you'll be an absolute save. You see how it works? So then salvation is the rescue from the misery and the slavery of serving anything in your life as more important to you than God. Salvation is more than just forgiveness of sins, which we love forgiveness of sins. That's a great part of what God does, but it's so much more than that. It is the rescue from the spiritual power of other gods to, to be free to love and serve God with our whole heart. Now, we're going to see this in later weeks, but when God sends Moses to Pharaoh, the message is this. It's not, hey, let my people go because you've been really mean. What does God say? Let my people go so that, do you remember? So that they can serve me. Pharaoh, let my people go so they can go into the wilderness and worship me. Exodus starts in slavery. It ends in worship at the foot of Mount Sinai where God gives the people his law. And here, here's the lesson. Our modern view of freedom is to not have any master at all, to be completely free, to do whatever we want to do, with whomever we want to do, whenever we want to do, for how, however long we want to do, in whatever way we want to do it. And the book of Exodus is designed to subvert that definition. It says true freedom. There's only one true freedom. There's only one way to true freedom, and that's to serve the living God. The purpose of Exodus was not that Israel might be free to wander off and do their own thing, but that they might be truly free to do God's thing. And so the contrast here is not between slavery and freedom, but between serving as a slave of Pharaoh and serving in true freedom the living God. The one is hard and bitter. The other is true joy and true freedom. And, and so here's the thing. Until you and I, until we are ravished by and bowing down to the beauty and the glory of God, we're not free. 
Only if God is the most important thing, only if his love is the ultimate source of your security, only if his pleasure with you is the ultimate source of your significance and happiness can, can you and I be free and not afraid of what's going to happen, but able to walk through whatever might come, all of the, the ups and downs of life, the powerful absences as well as the good times with joy and peace and hope. You see, you have to trust God, and you should. But here's why you can, and that's the last thing. Here's how you can be sure of his love and pleasure with you. Because this story points to another ultimate exodus. And Moses, who we'll talk about next week, points to another ultimate savior. And in him we see powerful grace. And grace means that the way out is through God's action, not ours. That, that, such a great song, that last song we sang, God Will Make a Way. I mean, just a sense of we're up against things that we can't, we're up against mountains we cannot move. We're we are locked behind walls that we cannot climb. God must come and do something. And grace means that God indeed does come and that it's his, the way out is his action and not as our, ours. Salvation belongs to the Lord, the Bible says. And so Exodus is all about what God does. There's even a time, it's my favorite probably little passage in the entire part of this book where uh, the Israelites have, have come out of Egypt and they've come to the Red Sea and there they are before the Red Sea and it's water before them. And if you remember, the Israelite armies are bearing down behind them and they're stuck right there in the middle and they start to freak out and they were going to be destroyed. Why do we come out so that we could, you know, be slaughtered by these people? And God speaks through Moses and here's what he says to the people. Listen to this. He says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you. There's nothing for you to do. That's grace. And this becomes even more apparent when you realize how these stories find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Think about this. Jesus' life begins with an evil king ordering the slaughter of Hebrew baby boys. Then Jesus and his family are forced to go down into Egypt fleeing Herod's rage. And Matthew quotes the prophet Hosea to, to identify him with his people. He's saying Jesus is the new Israel. If you remember at the beginning of his ministry, he was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And uh, just as Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, and while he was there, it's fascinating, he was tempted in the same way that Israel was tempted. He was tempted to grumble because he was hungry and to test God by demanding a miracle to satisfy his physical needs and to bow down before false gods. Now, these are not coincidences. Why all of these connections in the Bible? What's going on here? Well, it's there, and it means that in Jesus, God is working an even greater exodus than the one we read about here. In fact, there's a place in the Gospels at Jesus' transfiguration when it says Moses and Elijah are there, and the three of them are talking together, and they're talking about his, and the word is departure, but it's a strange word, and the commentators struggle with how to, to um, translate it, but it's a very specific word, and it means that they were talking. Jesus is there, and he's talking with Moses and Elijah about his exodus. So his death and resurrection was an exodus. It was the exodus, and that exodus, and that means that this passage, this exodus in this passage, though it was great, it's only a social and physical liberation of one group of people in a moment in history, but Jesus was doing something even better, that in his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus was liberating his people and you and I from the clutches of sin and death. Thank you, Rick. That's an amen moment, too. I'm trying to wake you guys. Listen, they're, they're going to run laps around y'all tonight. I'm just telling you. Y'all better wake up. Jesus is the new Israel. 
And he came into the world to go through everything that we go through so that he could succeed where we have failed because salvation is what he works, not what we work. The righteousness that we need to stand before God and not be condemned, but be absolutely loved and delighted and despite our sin, it is his gift, not our wage. And I don't want to say too much because we're going to have to come back to this, but uh, every week. So let me, just, let me just say these few things. First, if you're a Christian, it means you're in Christ. You've been united with him in faith, and that means what goes for him goes for you. So his exodus, in his death and resurrection, his exodus is the promise that your exodus will happen too. Jesus' resurrection, the Bible says, is the absolute certainty of promise that whatever death you might have to walk into, on the other side of it will be resurrection. But secondly, if you're in Christ, then everything he is and does and has is yours as well. And he is the measure of God's heart for you, not your circumstances. Don't judge God's heart on your circumstances. Judge his heart on the rescue he provides for you in Jesus. But then lastly, if you're in Christ, then you can be absolutely sure that the time, the times when God seems to be most absent, he's actually the most active because you only need to look at the cross. And on the cross, at the moment, at the, moment the greatest good that has ever been accomplished in the history of the world, God seemed most absent. As it said, he forsook the Son, Jesus cried out, Why have you forsaken me, Father? So the cross means that no bad thing can thwart the good God intends to do. He is never absent. He is never indifferent to you. Listen, if, you're, if your faith is in Jesus, he is never too busy to know what you're going through. He hears, he remembers, he sees, he knows, and he is coming. Now, in his time, but he is coming, and he will bring you up. And it may not look exactly like what you expect. But here's the thing. It will be better than you could ever imagine. That's the promise. Isn't it a great promise? So let's thank him. Let's pray. So, Father, in this last moment in our service, as we sing this song, this, is a, this song is a, a declaration of our faith and our trust in you that we really, we really do place ourselves in your hands and we know that even in the times of of greatest sadness and darkness and despair for us that you're sovereign over those moments that every absence is a strong absence because even though we can't see it you're working and you're weaving things together to do good to us oh father help us to believe because we're so full of unbelief and in our unbelief we want to take our hands and put our put our our life in our own hands and we just cause things to go from bad to worse and so give us faith in this moment to sit before you you would say to us I'm coming there's nothing for you to do the battle is mine you need to only stand stand still and see the deliverance that I bring that's that's the moment of greatest faith and so we need that kind of faith and we and we don't have it and it comes from you and so would you come in this last moment of our service and put in our hearts the words to sing this song as a prayer to you that you're indeed sovereign over us. Our lives are in your hands. What great hands. They're pierced hands because your heart is so great for us. Oh, Father, in this moment, come and be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
Those are true words, but they are hard words sometimes to sing. But I would say to you, that's exactly, that's exactly what, to sing that song is exactly what it looks like to cry out to God for rescue. And you need to know that because of the work of Jesus, every cry of rescue comes right into his heart so that he responds with words like these. Amen, right? So here's his response to your cry, whatever it might be, for whatever rescue you might need, it's with this promise, that indeed he's coming. And he sends you, he goes with you, and, and, and wherever he sends you now, so receive these words in this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.